The priority for Florida's next public education commissioner is in the classroom. We're facing a teacher shortage. The new public education boss will take over as the agency faces questions about rejecting textbooks and implementing controversial laws. Plus, Florida becomes one of the first states to have its own election police force. It was a real right turn out of the blue coming from national political pressure to say that we need an election police. This is the Florida Roundup from WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Melissa Ross. Lots to discuss this hour. Join us. Call in 305-995-1800 right here on the Florida Roundup with your phone calls and tweets right after the news. Welcome to the Florida Roundup on Florida Public Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson in Miami. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, Florida will be one of the first states in the nation to have a police force dedicated to elections. This unit will be able to investigate election crime allegations and enforce election laws. This is Governor Ron DeSantis's response to calls for election security even though it's the Florida Republican Party that has been under scrutiny for election scandals. We'll have more on the state's new election police force later in the show. But first, the state's new education commissioner. Miami-Dade Senator Manny Diaz takes over the public education agency as it finds itself the focus of several controversial issues, including rejecting textbooks, speech in classrooms, and banning mask mandates in schools. We spoke with Senator Diaz earlier this week. Senator Diaz, welcome back to Florida Public Radio, and congratulations on the nomination as Education Commissioner. What will be your priority as Commissioner? It's an incredible, exciting opportunity, but I think, you know, number one thing is here, we're facing a teacher shortage. Um, There's an issue with recruitment and retention. Actually, there's an issue across all employment, right, all sectors, and teacher shortages were already coming down the horizon, so that's the big issue, because two Two things that are most important in, uh, in, in education in the school is the leadership at the school and the teacher in the classroom. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges we're going to have to step up and face here. And, and obviously, um, implementation of this new testing uh, structure that we're going to put in with the progress monitoring uh, that I had the good fortune of, of sponsoring the bill. So now, now I'm going to have an opportunity, it looks like, to implement it. So that's something uh, that I look forward to. But again, that those transitions are always a challenge. On the teaching side, the National Education Association finds that the average teaching salary in Florida is about $51,000, 48th in the nation. Only two states pay less on average. How do you address that? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think, uh, number one, I, I commend the governor for his leadership on the creation of the first ever in Florida teacher salary allocation, which has never been done um, you know, because salaries are really the responsibility of the districts. But he, he pushed for an, in, an investment of about $500 million to get that going. To get the first steps or the starting teachers up to 47.5 uh, initially creates some compression issues with teachers at, you know, different, different parts of the pay scale. So one of the things we did this year is we, we invested another $600 million, but we also split that with the flexibility of 50-50 for starting pay and teachers across the scale. And I think we can continue to move in that direction to provide flexibility for teachers to, for districts to not only recruit teachers, new teachers to the profession, but also retain those veteran teachers 
that are doing a good job and teaching our children in the classrooms. Senator Diaz, on the first part, on the starting salary, $47,500 was what was set in legislation a few sessions ago. Uh, A recent survey found that a number of school districts in Florida have yet to bring up their starting salaries to that level. Right, and and we expected that was going to take a couple of years because depending on where in the state and what school district it was, there were at different points. And, you know, 47.5 in one part of the state is very different uh, economic purchasing power than in other parts of the state. So you have, you know, you have uh, different district cost differential issues, cost of living issues and all of that. So it is a work in progress, but I do believe we've made incredible strides in pushing that. And of course, Florida has some advantages that other states don't, you know, our tax structure, no personal income tax and other things. On the issue of teacher pay, uh, there is uh, some dollars that are earmarked for teacher bonuses uh, this year for, uh, instance, uh, for school districts that uh, schools get an A grade or improved grades. Uh, now, the legislature approved some eligibility requirements, including districts where school boards put in place mask requirements earlier this year, are ineligible for that funding. Will your department reject those districts if they apply for those teacher bonus funds? Well, the department has to follow the law and state statute says that they're not eligible and that school recognition is a reward. And so for this year, those schools that didn't comply wouldn't be eligible. That's the law. That's what we will follow. We will we have to follow the law. And is the department prepared to defend that law if those school districts, including some of the largest in Florida, sue over that uh, eligibility requirement? Absolutely. The department will be ready to uh, defend the law. Uh, Let me ask about COVID infection rates. They're rising in some places here in Florida. Do school districts have the ability to institute mask requirements for students if school boards decide to bring those back? No, as a result of the special session, laws were passed where uh, mask requirements cannot be imposed on on students in school. Um, The schools are welcome to use other mitigation strategies. Of course, masks are allowed. Their students can wear them if they decide that's the best thing for them, and teachers can wear them if they decide that's the best thing for them. And so I think we're looking away from the mask and looking for more of the other mitigations. Schools have received both federal and state dollars to, to mitigate using air purification systems, and we've seen that deployed across the state at different schools. Um, also, you know, the, having students uh, go in, outside and be in more open spaces. So they have mitigation strategies they can, in, uh, they can uh, use, but they cannot impose masks. That's uh, a violation of state law. If districts do go in that direction, will your department under your leadership seek some kind of penalty? We, the department under my leadership will enforce the law and uh, districts will have to follow the law. And, you know, the department doesn't write the law. The job is to enforce it. And the department will enforce the law uh, depending on any kind of violation on it. So uh, what we're hoping is that, you know, districts continue to use other mitigation strategies and we keep our kids safe uh, with with, uh, mitigation strategies that work and that we keep our students in class learning with their teacher, which is the most important thing. The agency that you are leading now has been in the news significantly in Florida and in legislation. Let's talk about textbooks here, Senator. Dozens of math textbooks were rejected by the Department of Education for not aligning with state standards, including containing prohibited topics. Uh, Will you release examples of all the rejected textbooks? The Department of Education released four examples last week. Will you release all the examples? 
Well, first of all, uh, this is not a unique situation. There's book reviews, textbook reviews for adoption every year, sure. different subjects. Yeah, it's part of the normal process. And they get rejected all the time for different reasons, not meeting standards. Number two, we have to remember that these are copyrighted materials. And so when a textbook's not adopted, it, they, the opportunity goes back to the publisher to make an amendment to meet the requirements of the state standards and what the reviewers are looking for. So they will have that opportunity. And there's not a closed timeline. They can just decide to amend and come back uh, and resubmit. Uh, but as far as the copyrighted materials, and I think that's been some of the talk that there's been about wanting the department to release these materials. You can't just release somebody's copyrighted materials. Well, so how did the department release the four examples it did release then? Well, that's a question. I, I would have to have the conversations with the legal team to make sure that the department in that instance wouldn't be violating the law or have the express uh, permission of the publisher. And that may, I'm not up to speed on that exact case of the materials that were released, whether they got permission from the publisher or how it went, but under legal guidance from the legal department of the department, we will make sure that the laws follow and the copyright laws follow and none of that is violated. I understand people wanting to know the why and see the why, but there's there's more to these things sometimes than meets the eye and, and by, you can't violate copyright law. So that would be a work in progress and obviously following the guidance of the legal department to make sure that we're in compliance with the law. The banned subjects that were noted in the announcement from the Department of Education, including critical race theory, social emotional learning in math, and common core. Social emotional learning is described as self-awareness, interpersonal skills, soft skills. Why is that banned in Florida in a math textbook? Well, you have to look at the standards, number one, and then you have to look at the reviewers. These reviewers are people that are teachers that are in the field and look at what's supposed to be in the textbook. I believe what I saw on that is that it referred to it, that piece as unsolicited. That means it wasn't part of the request for the bid for adoption. What's supposed to be in these textbooks, it has to meet the new standards, the best standards. Those best standards explicitly state that social emotional learning is prohibited in math textbooks? I do not recall the standards saying that, but if it's unsolicited, it's not material that's supposed to be in our book. That can be brought up as a red flag. And, and again, conversations can be had with the publisher for clarity and to amend any of the submissions. So that's something that I would have to dive a little uh, deeper into. But the truth is, if they want to do business in our state and, and they want to sell books, they, they need to really be in line with our standards and, and with the law. This is the Florida Roundup on Florida Public Radio. We're talking with Florida's new education commissioner, Manny Diaz. Let's talk about the parental rights in education law, which restricts classroom discussions about gender identity and sexual orientation. It requires the state, your department, the Department of Education, to update state standards for what is age appropriate for these discussions by June of 2023. How will you go about defining what is age appropriate under this law? Well, like we like we do in education all the time, I think there is a pedagogy and there is a timeline uh, by which uh, not only standards, but concepts student learn at what age. And, and those are those are, you know, things that have been studied and come up with child psychologists and human development and all those things. We will use our professionals at the department to assure that the materials are not only in line with the concepts that are covered in the standards, which is number one. And number two, that you're not, you know, you're not using a middle school book for a third grader. You know, the, the material needs to be covered uh, within the realm of, of topics and concepts uh, that is being introduced to those students at that age. We should constantly be in review of that and always um, 
have things that are age appropriate, regardless of the topic. As you know, opponents of this piece of legislation have focused on concerns regarding LGBTQ plus population. How does heterosexuality figure into this work toward defining age appropriateness? It should all be the same. I mean, age appropriate is age appropriate, regardless of the topic. Does the law apply to charter schools as well? The law should apply to charter schools because the materials. But does it? I, I'm I'm not clear on that. There was discussions back and forth, but I, I need to investigate if it, if it specifically applies to charter schools. But it's, uh, they're public schools, so I'm assuming that the content uh, that's covered in those areas should be in line with the public school curriculum. Why is there a question, even in your mind as a legislator, whether or not this law that you voted on applies to public charter schools? Why wasn't that clear during the debate and conversation, I guess? I would say going back now to all the number of pieces of legislation that we passed, that if you ask me uh, bits and pieces of it right now, uh, going back and trying to remember what's each one of those bills uh, in totality is is, uh, difficult. So having the details of that, that's something that I want to confirm before I answer you, because I actually... You know, again, we, we, we went through that wasn't my bill. Uh, I did vote on it, but it wasn't my bill. And, and most of the content of the bill and the discussion was around the content and not uh, where the application was. As the incoming education commissioner in Florida, do you think that this law, the parental rights and education law, should apply to all schools receiving public funds? I think it should apply to the public schools, especially those that receive dollars for their instructional materials and what's covered and follow the state standards. Would that include religious schools taking state vouchers, state scholarships? Religious schools and private schools under the vouchers do not fall under the state standards or the curriculum. So it wouldn't apply there. And there, a parent you know, is obviously making the decision of the school they're taking their child, choosing them to put in a putting them in um, any specific program. And again, that's, this is, this bill's titled parental rights. So it's a parent's choice uh, to make a decision like that. But couldn't that scholarship money be used for instructional materials in those religious schools? Scholarship. Yeah. Material. I mean, scholarship funds are used for tuition. Obviously school has to function and they buy materials. But again, I go back to the fact that this is a, um, this is a topic where the parent is making a, decision of which program they're putting them in. Um, And there's also, you know, if you get into areas where you're violating health, welfare, and safety of the student, then the department does have the right to step in uh, to schools that receive vouchers because they are under the supervision of the department. Let's talk about the Individual Freedom Act, the so-called Stop Woke Act that uh, Governor DeSantis uh, first proposed back in December. This bans a student from being instructed to feel, quote, guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress for actions in which he or she played no part. What does that, as your, as the incoming education commissioner, what does that phrase, guilt or anguish, uh, psychological distress for actions, mean to you? No, no. What it, what it directly means to me and what is written in the bill is the imposition of guilt, anguish, for something that that the student wasn't involved in. In other words, blaming someone for something that happened, you know, 150 years ago when it wasn't them and they weren't there just because of the color of their skin or their background or what country they came from. That is what it means. Um, You know, if somebody feels guilty because of a conversation, that's that's not covered under the law, uh, which is what's been talked about. But the truth is, it's 
the prevention of being prohibition of being imposing the guilt or forcing someone to take um, the guilt and action um, with the threat that their grade would be affected uh, in a negative manner if they don't uh, step up and accept it. So as a legal concept, it's it's not just feeling of guilt or anguish, but there's some kind of evidence necessary that an instructor imposed that feeling toward a student. Is that, that, that is correct. That is correct. And it, and it goes in and it goes into it. It goes into a statute that already exists that has a, uh, you know, a cause of action that has to have evidence that you, sh- you need to be able to prove it in order for them to be actioned. Uh, obviously, there, there are school compl- there are complaints on teachers and on materials that are taught every day in our schools. And school districts have a process for dealing with those. It goes through the teacher first and the administrator. Then, you know, if it gets above that, if it's system wide, it goes to the school board. But again, there is a process and there is due process. So this is not something that happens um, frivolously. It's, it's in order for it to be actually upheld, it has to have evidence. As a legislator, Senator Diaz, your full-time job has been as an administrator for a college owned by a company that owns uh, for-profit uh, charter schools. Uh, now, as education commissioner, will you continue in that role? No, the, the education commissioner position is a full-time role, and I, I will be committed to it full-time. I will no, no longer be employed at the, the private nonprofit college, um, and my dedication full-time will be to the students and the parents of the great state of Florida. Your predecessor, Richard Corcoran, I think it's fair to say, had a combative relationship with some school districts and school boards during the pandemic. What do you see as your role as education commissioner? Look, you know, I served with with Richard Corcoran in the Florida House. I think he did a great job as commissioner as well. Um, Everybody has their own style. And and my if you look back at the 10 years of my legislative career, I have a a, a style uh, that is not as combative. I put my health down and go to work. That doesn't mean that I don't have the same intensity or the same drive uh, or the same beliefs and philosophy. It just means that we we have different styles when we go about it. I look to have, um, as Richard often didn't, I look to have open doors and conversations with teachers, teachers unions, stakeholders, parents, whoever, um, to, to listen to their concerns because that's how we make our system better. But at the same time, I, I have a job to do to um, implement the law and also to make sure that I look out for all of Florida students. And so I will do that and we will continue to push forward with the governor's vision and making sure that our state continues to have uh, great educational opportunities for our students. Given your professional interest and career in charter schools, your role as a regulator and lawmaker, now your role as commissioner, what's your definition of public education in Florida? My definition of public education is what I think the founders uh, and, and that generation looked at is in order to have a productive citizenry who is educated and are, are able to uphold our republic, it is to provide that education. Where I think I differ with some people is that some people think Public education only means education by your public district school. And I believe that it's it's a menu of options, whether it be through your district public schools and those programs and improving and expanding those, whether it be our public charter schools or whether it be here in the state of Florida, our different scholarship programs. I think all of it is part of our public education system. We don't push for any one of them. It's parents' decision to make that best decision for each individual child. And each individual child is different. So the, 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 I think the whole landscape is public education, 
we should be concerned for all of them. Senator Manny Diaz, the new education commissioner in the state of Florida. Commissioner Diaz, thank you so much for spending the time with us here today. Thank you, Tom. Still to come, Florida's new election fraud patrol. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. In Miami, I'm Tom Hudson. This week, Governor Ron DeSantis signed off on a new election police force for Florida. DeSantis says the additional changes would give Floridians more confidence about the voting process. We just want to make sure whatever laws are on the books, that those laws are enforced, uh, and that if people know that, that we're going to enforce the law, I think everyone will be very happy. However, critics say this new election police unit for the state is unnecessary and, they charge, politically motivated. For more on this, we spoke with Cecile Schoon, president of the League of Women Voters of Florida. Cecile Schoon, good to be with you. Thanks for joining the Florida Roundup. My pleasure. So the League of Women Voters of Florida has come out with heavy criticism against the state's new election police unit. You say it's unnecessary. Why is that? Well, when uh, the legislators who proposed uh, this bill, this law, when they were asked, you know, has, was there evidence of significant fraud or anything that was going on that, that you're unhappy about with the elections, they all said no. The elections were wonderful, and the governor said so immediately after the elections. Our Secretary of State, Lee, who's over the um, elect- Division of Elections, said that also, I mean, I was proud. I think every Floridian, we've had so many problems when, you know, the government says we got our results right away. We had a lot of early voting. Everything went well. You took that to heart. So it was a real right turn out of the blue, basically coming from national political pressure to, you know, say that we need an election police because in Florida, there was no need. Among the uh, provisions of this law, uh, some seem fairly anodyne. Uh, One uh, piece of it calls for requiring election supervisors to clean up voter rolls annually, you know, checking the status of people who've died or who are inactive or who may have moved. Others are more controversial. Uh, This would establish a 25-person Office of Election Crimes and Security to look into voting irregularities or illegalities. It would ban ranked choice voting statewide, which is catching on in other states. It would make ballot harvesting a felony. Uh, That's the practice of a person or organization collecting completed mail ballots from other people and delivering them. What about some of these aspects of the law and critics such as your organization have described this as creating a chilling effect on access to the ballot? Can you explain why you feel strongly about this? Sure. The supervisors of elections doing maintenance of the rules, that's no problem. That's, that's, that's something that is a practical uh, thing that um, the league has, has no no problem with, and I believe the supervisors of elections also said, "Yeah, we could we could do better there." So that is not something the league is complaining about. The issue of ballot harvesting—that's just like a really kind of negative word. What was going on in the community is that many times churches and places of worship, the lot, especially in the black community, 
what happens is in in my church um there would be designated people who would drive around and pick up people from either their homes or nursing homes and bring them to church because they're they're the mothers and the grandmothers of the church and the grandfathers and we want our elderly with us at this time and so it's difficult for them to uh, get around we would sometimes people would buy their groceries so as part of that i heard in my own hearing uh the pastor would say okay on wednesday um everyone you know look at your ballot and everything and bring it in on sunday and then they would bring it to church and someone would take it in for them nobody was getting paid it was somebody we knew and so this thing of that so-called ballot harvesting is hurting that community effort of known people helping people that they know and love who need help. So that's hurtful, and that's a practice that was not uncommon in many of the black churches where we know all of the congregants. They're people that you know, we take care of. So there's a concern that because the investigators, they're going to respond to whatever's called in, that this opens the door for targeting and frightening many groups. Cecile, what about the criticism of this law that has been made not only by the League of Women Voters of Florida, but other opponents of this measure? They see this move by the governor as an effort to appeal to GOP primary base voters who believe a lie. They believe that former President Donald Trump somehow had the 2020 election stolen from him. He alleged fraud in several swing states. Uh, No evidence of fraud was ever proven in court. In fact, dozens of cases were thrown out of court. And so what about the notion that uh, a false belief among many voters out there is driving Florida policy? That's very, very concerning. And there seems to be when pressed, there's a leadership in the Republican Party that has agreed that President Biden won the election fair and square, but they are not coming forward and saying it aggressively and openly. They're terrified of being turned against by their base. And that's just a lack of courage and a lack of following the truth. And in the state of Florida, Floridians in particular They need to stop and think about what's going on. In Florida, former President Trump won the state. So to say, oh, my gosh, it was stolen and we need new laws in Florida is completely illogical. The individual that many of these base line voters wanted won and won with a fairly decent margin. So not only was there no proof, there was no evidence of of any fraud in Florida, which all of the supervisors of elections agreed with, the division of elections, the governor agreed with. So we have that. And on top of it, the person that many of these people who think there's something stolen, your candidate won. So you don't have to turn around and do everything that you hear happening in other states. There is no basis no facts, and the person that you wanted to win won. No fraud, no steal, nothing. There was none across the nation. We know that. But certainly Floridians, if they just want to look at what happened in our state, since we're spending money from our state coffers, they should look at what happened in Florida. And if they just stop for a moment 
they would understand that this is ridiculous and a waste of money. Cecile Schoon, president of the League of Women Voters of Florida. Thanks for joining us. We did invite Republican sponsors of the new election police unit to appear on the Florida Roundup and didn't hear back. The Sunshine State is no longer going to participate in the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Now, this decision is drawing alarm from doctors and child welfare agencies across the state. This survey is administered by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's a unique source of data monitoring youth health risk behaviors and is used to help set policy to protect children and young people. We'll go to your calls on the Youth Risk Behavior Survey in a moment. The number to join us, 305-995-1800. Tweet us your questions at Florida Roundup. But first, let's speak with Dr. Mobin Rathor, professor and associate chair of the Department of Pediatrics at UF Health Jacks. He's also past president of the Florida chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Rathor, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning, panel. So why are doctors and child welfare advocates so concerned about this decision that the state is no longer participating in the youth risk behavior survey? Well, you know, it's important to understand what this is, first and foremost. You know, this is a a surveillance system uh, that was launched by the CDC in 1990 to monitor uh, many of the health risks, behavior uh, that can lead to disease and, uh, and death, social problems. So this is a national system, surveillance system, which many states, territories, and tribal uh, systems participate. And was initiated to provide data on the prevalence and co-occurrence of uh, primary and health, uh, behavioral health sort of risk factors, including unintentional injuries, violence, uh, sexual behavior, alcohol and drug use, tobacco use, unhealthy dietary behavior, mental health issues, inadequate uh, exercise activity, all of those. So you can see why this is so important because, you know, especially in this day and time as, as families across the state continue to experience uh, hardships amid the pandemic, uh, this information is key uh, for, uh, for the planners, for the legislators, for policymaker and the state's withdrawal. You know, this comes at a time when it is more important than ever to have this sort of a data and for the health and, and well-being of our young uh, people, kids who go to school. And, and it's, you know, the Department of Children's Families, for example, they use the YRBS data to monitor suicide prevention, uh, anxiety that, as you know, is at its highest level for a long time in the pandemic and continues to rise. Suicide, suicide prevention is the third leading cause of death among young people. Uh, even the opioid crisis, and you know, that continues to be escalating even through the pandemic and the op- opioid deaths are increasing. So I think the, these allow us to propose uh, increased allocations towards services uh, and, and, and from men- mental health, well-being, physical health-being, prevention services. So there are so many things. And by the way, it's not just physicians who are opposed for the state not participating in this and are concerned about it, which is anybody who cares for children and is a child advocate. So from what I hear you saying, Dr. Rathor, this is the worst possible time, in your view, to stop gathering this data. Do you consider youth in Florida and in the nation to be at a particularly vulnerable time in history in terms of all of the the stressors that they're under? 
Yeah, I mean, this this is, as I said, this is the worst time one could uh, pick to do this. I mean, it would be bad at any time, frankly, because if we don't have the right data, it is difficult to for planning the appropriate service for youth. And there's so much going on in the pandemic. You know, our hospitals have been filled with youth with mental health problems. Uh, you know, anxiety levels are going up, suicide, and we're going back to school, we're talking about violence, tobacco. I mean, we, we need this information, which has sort of been the ballwork of how we uh, plan our services for our youth and children. And it's been, it's not like it's a well-tested and scientifically valid uh, system. It's a surveillance system, which allows us, uh, and, and all, here's the other thing. This can, they, we have information to uh, county level. So the health, county school systems, health departments, they can work together and they can also compare what's happening in your area, in your region, in your school district, in your state, with the others, and, and see what, you know, how, how you're feeling. So I think, again, this is, this is the, exactly the time. I mean, although this started back in 1990s, it is perfectly built for the current time for us to be, have a better plan for serving our youth. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Do we know why the state has decided to no longer participate in this public health survey? Well, you, 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 I really don't know the answer to that. I mean, we can all speculate why it is. I think uh, one of the th- things that, you know, this program does it, it also tells us about the services and, and the uh, challenges our uh, LGBTQ youth are f- uh, facing. Uh, you know, this is also something that, helps us for uh, homeless youth. I mean, the sexual behavior, I mean, if you want to not know about things and act like an ostrich, this is perfect not to do the survey. Uh, but we, I, I don't know really the reason because it's not like it's uh, it's something bad or it's, it's impending on somebody. It's, it's a voluntary survey, by the way. Youth 9 to 10, uh, 9th to 12th grade uh, can opt out of it if they want to. The parents can opt out if they want to. It's a voluntary survey. So nobody's being forced to do it. Now, the Florida Department of Health also recently released guidelines opposing all forms of gender-affirming care for the treatment of youth gender dysphoria, uh, including social affirmation and gender transition you mentioned the LGBTQ population among youth, and you survey this vulnerable group, or at least the state did until now, via the survey. So how does that decision from the state health department interact, in your view, with the decision to stop participating in the youth risk behavior survey? Well, that's a terrible decision just on its own. It doesn't need anything else to be said on that one. Um, certainly it'll impact because if we don't know how to serve this population, uh, it's going to be even worse. But again, that's an issue that uh, all healthcare advocates, physicians, are, are, and the Florida chapter, we are, we are opposed to that. We are, we first and foremost, we are opposed to, to, to legislator, legislators to tell us how we take care of our patients. We cannot have uh, the legislators in our uh, patient rooms, in our physician-patient relationship. Uh, you know, we have professional societies who look at this. The American Academy of Pediatrics has guidelines. The Endocrine Society has guidelines. I mean, these are folks who look at all science and all evidence. And it's critically important that not just this, but any service that we provide to our patients is based on science and evidence. 
Melissa, as you know, I'm a big fan of science and evidence. And I, we need to make sure that we don't let somebody sitting in Tallahassee tell somebody in Orlando how they take care of their patient. Who And these are people, most of them, there are a few healthcare people in the last year, have really no idea what, what, what this is about. I mean, is this is... I'm a physician. I've been practicing for more than 31 years. I'm not an expert in that. I have to look at the experts myself who are experts in uh, uh, transgender issues and ask for their guidance. So I think this is, it, is not something... Is it hyperb- Dr. Rethor, is it hyperbolic to say, or is it fair to say, that Florida's decision to withdraw from this survey is endangering kids' lives in Florida? Yes, yes. You believe that not gathering this data will put kids at risk of harm or death? It it would, because if we we cannot find out what's the degree of uh, mental health issues, uh, what's the degree of suicide uh, activity or or ideation, or uh, how can we do suicide prevention? How can we do tobacco prevention if you're not understanding what is happening? How sexual behavior, you know, Florida is having a higher number of syphilis and other sexually transmitted diseases, and not knowing what children's sexual behaviors are, what sexual mental health issues are, what the suicide prevention issues are, what injury and violence prevention issues are, I can go on and on. And you can surmise from that, if we don't have that information, how do we impact to make sure that the bad things don't happen to these children because of this. So I think, yes, we are going to put children's health at risk. We are going to put children's life at risk. And I think that's why people are concerned. We are talking about the recent decision by the state of Florida to opt out of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which asks questions to young people throughout the state of Florida and elsewhere in the United States regarding a number of different behaviors. We'd like to hear from you, 305-995-1800, 305-995-1800, students, parents, grandparents, we'd love to hear from you, 305-995-1800, as the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio continues in a moment. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio. Thanks for supporting public broadcasting in your community. In Miami, I'm Tom Hudson. In Jacksonville, I'm Melissa Ross. We're talking right now about Florida deciding to no longer participate in the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. The CDC administers this nationwide. Health professionals say it's critical to protecting kids on a range of issues. What are your questions? 305-995-1800. Tweets to at Florida Roundup, getting some tweets already on the show uh, about this expressing concern about the withdrawal. Let's continue now with Dr. Mobin Rathor, uh, who's been filling us in on this. Uh, Dr. Rathor, high school participation in this survey is higher than middle school. Uh, is that representative, the, the survey results that in the past have been collected? Well, it is representative of kids. Uh, yes, for, for high school is more numbers, but it does represent, remember, this is a nationwide survey. So the trends are nationwide. And I think this is the sort of a survey uh, that even with, that's the, by the way, this is the best information we have uh, to plan. And it, this is the information that is uh, that that was, uh, uh, information gathered for them is used to develop and implement 
programs or and, and shape public policy and support public health and ensure that you know youth are healthy and they're ready to succeed this is our future and i think uh, you know this, it's important that the state of florida uh, the state agencies confirm a, confirm a commitment and support this great resource uh, that is used by every other state it is not something that is you know we are trying to gather some personal information that's anonymized anyways and it provides data on trends that underlie uh, you know the, for example urgency to attending risk behaviors and we want to have that uh, it allows the examination of data uh, in subgroups that in order we can tailor our interventions and supports the students who need it most so I think you're, you're is... you, it, and you're you and other doctors it's my understanding are mobilizing to try to get the state to change its mind on this is that right well, we are, we have, you know, we are writing about it with, you know, uh, we, we want, we are trying to present science and we are trying to present evidence that this is important. It's, by the way, it's not just the doctors. I keep repeating that child, child advocates are very concerned. People, doctors is a one group, but there are a whole large group of Floridians who serve children for suicide prevention, for mental health issues. Uh, for sexual risk behavior issues, for teaching. And so I think uh, I think the school should be, because the school districts and school administrators and teachers are concerned. Uh, so it's, you know, I know I'm a physician, I, and you, that's why I'm probably addressing that, but it is much wider group of child advocates than just physicians who are trying to hopefully convince the state to see the light, do the right thing by our children, and continue participating in this survey. Doctor, we want to hear from some Floridians now about this survey and Florida's decision, the state decision, to opt out of the Centers for Disease Control Youth Risk Behavior Survey, 305-995-1800, 305-995-1800. Donna is listening and joining us from Hollywood. Go ahead, Donna. You're on the radio. Oh, yes. Hello. Um, I was listening to your wonderful program, and my comment is that turning away from education and learning and understanding, accepting other human beings that might not be exactly like us is a good thing. And turning away from the light uh, and staying in ignorance, uh, going back to the cave, is not a an option. And... Um, Human beings are like flowers in a garden. We're all colors, all sizes, all shapes, and we look different, but we're really all the same. Donna, I appreciate the imagery. Thanks for uh, joining the conversation there from Hollywood. Chris is listening in in uh, Wesley Chapel. Uh, Chris, go ahead. You're on the radio. Yes, hi. I had a question for the doctor. Um, Doctor, are there any questions in that survey that, you might feel that if they were being asked of your children, that would be somewhat invasive. And I'll take my comments off the air. Fair enough. Uh, Doctor, go ahead. Yeah, that's an important question. Students don't have to answer all the questions also. If you feel, if you're a student, first of all, it's anonymous, so you, you will never get back to you. But if a student feels that they want to answer a question, they don't have to. I mean, that's the beauty of this. It's, it's a voluntary. So uh, whether I feel if a question is appropriate or not appropriate for my child or somebody else who's appropriate, you know, if you if you have, if the child doesn't feel like they want to answer it, they don't have to. So I'm not very concerned about that. It's not like somebody's looking over my shoulder and say, "You better answer this question, man." That's not what's happening. 
Doctor, one of the questions asks about emotional health. It uh, asks if a, if a student or a young person felt sad or hopeless almost every day for two or more weeks so that they stopped doing unusual act, stopped doing usual activities. Excuse me. In 2019, 34% of uh, Floridian youth said yes to this. That's a 6% increase from 2017. And of course, this doesn't capture the pandemic years. Uh, uh, without that question being asked, uh, in the years ahead, what potentially could be missed? What do mental health uh, experts, advocates, what do youth advocates uh, need to uh, need to be watching? Well, that's a very important and very critical statistic. Let me add to that: there was a five percent increase in the same period of time for a youth who were seriously considering suicide. So, if if we are if we don't know where our youth are with their mental in this what we refer to as often as the mental health domain, if we don't know where are they in that domain, how are we going to tailor services for our youth? How are we going to allocate resources? How are we going to make sure there's enough uh, information for policymakers to make a policy for the uh, people on the ground implement those policies and for the state to fund those programs? I think. And as you, you, you're right, it's just the mental health. I, mean, I, I suspect if they, if they did the survey, they'll find it's much worse. There is going to be, uh, this. the survey is done every other year. So there's going to be data coming out very soon, subsequent to the last one, I think was 2019. So I think the 2021 data should be coming soon. So there'll be some help for this, but we are nowhere close to out of this pandemic. And I think there's another part to it uh, we need to focus on. As kids come back to school, uh, more and more it's normalized there are going to be other stresses that they're going to face so we need to know that about they're going that going to also. face and so and you're listening to the florida roundup from florida public radio lots of tweets terry tweets the show the increasing youth suicide rate alone would be justification for saving any program aimed at helping youth how caring can officials be if they discontinue participation let's go to sean in tampa he's on the line hi sean go ahead Hey, thank you so much for uh, taking my call. Listening, guys, all the time. Thank you. So, um, I am the parent of an LGBTQ plus child, and I think that the most important part, from my perspective, is <clears throat> that we—I'll just be super blunt. This is not an area where we should be asking questions. Why are people doing what they're doing? Um, this is a very clear and very real attack with real effect that causes damage to a very vulnerable group of people that I, as a parent, don't entirely know what I'm doing or what I should be doing, how all that works. Um, and then someone's going to come out of left field, interject themselves into that, and, and, and cause damage by removing this information that's very helpful to providing services for people who need it, such as my child. And I just want to know, why do we keep asking, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? This is very clear why this is happening. This is an aggressive movement by a Republican far right leaning administrator to damage and criminalize LGBTQ plus myth. Period. So Sean, thanks for your opinion on that. We let's be clear, we still do not have an explanation. We will seek to get one about this decision. But Dr. Rathor, certainly parents feel quite strongly about this as we've heard from callers. Is the refusal to participate an attack, as that caller believes, on vulnerable youth populations? So let, let me share with you one other statistic. You know, for students who uh, 
consider themselves uh, by, uh, as gay or lesbian or in the LGBTQ uh, community, uh, if that's what they consider, the, their, were, their risk for or them seriously considering suicide, the numbers were double of the general, so it's what more than 30% of them. So just that one number. So if, if we cannot tailor these services specific, uh, you know, so to these uh, uh, LGBTQ uh, children, uh, that's going to be dangerous. You know, data clearly uh, underscore that we need to have gender specific pro programming and as well as support services for uh, not only the uh, LGBTQ population, but the other vulnerable population, the homeless children. Uh, I mean, that's one other group that we, uh, you know, they're about, they probably estimate 2 million homeless uh, st uh, uh, ch children who go to school and there are a whole bunch of homeless uh, school children who don't even go to school. So I think it, 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 it does place those children who are more vulnerable. All children are vulnerable. Let's not forget about that. Okay. Yeah. That's a vulnerable population. But with, within that vulnerable population, there are groups that are even higher vulnerability, LGBTQ, homeless, those with mental health issues. We just, I think we have to tailor our services to those specific uh, group of uh, our children. Doctor, just 12, 20 seconds here. Could the survey be distributed in Florida without the state government okay? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I don't think so because I, it is my understanding that the CDC only, can only come to a state if the, the government invites them. Uh, there's some I sort see. of a federal uh, law or whatever, uh, they, they cannot come in without uh, the, the state government's uh, permission, if you will. Dr. Athor, thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us and uh, the Florida Ronda. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Dr. Mobin Rathor, Professor, Associate Chair of the Department of Pediatrics at UF Jacksonville, past president of the Florida chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Now, if you or anyone you know is struggling with suicide, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. That's our show. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are producers. Catherine Hobbs is associate producer. WLRN's Director of Radio Operations and our program's Technical Director is Peter Maritz. Engineering help each and every week from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Josh Torres. Alyssa Ramos answered the phones this week. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Levos at AaronLevos.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Melissa Ross. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next Friday. <laughs>